Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1966 film, The Battle of Algiers. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, Barrett, um, this movie I was not prepared for, uh, for what it was going to be. Uh, I realized we watched this this podcast we mostly watched some pretty great movies this thing's a masterpiece this is this is uh i'm breathless thinking about it like like i really um this movie hit me in ways one i was as i was writing notes um i wrote the words this is a really powerful movie and then i started to write about what power meant and i was like well it's powerful in the way lots of stories are but like I don't know that I'm ever going to forget this movie and it has basically dominated my thought this week and I can't quite get away from it. And it also has sort of the literal power of a bomb in a suitcase, you know, like, like it, it's a, this is not just a a story. This is not just a piece of history. This is the kind of movie that can ignite revolutions. I think like, like it is, it uh it makes a case for the power of cinema uh in some some pretty crazy ways well that's a really interesting opening statement for you to make sam because in fact um according to what i've read the film has been used in the past by revolutionaries as a training film uh and pontecorvo's response to that was he says the battle of algiers does not teach how to make war but how to make cinema uh, which is a really interesting kind of combination. And maybe maybe that speaks to what you were getting at when you talk about the power of this film, because, um, I mean, as is obvious, Pontecorvo is trying to create something that looks as much like a newsreel as possible. Um, it's really hard to believe, but it is true. There is not a single inch of actual historical footage in, in this film. Everything was staged by, by Ponte Corvo. Um, you can put newsreels from this period side by side, and you can see that in some respects, he's actually recreated mm-hmm. uh, that reality. But I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm dwelling on that because I think so much of the power of the film derives from what Ponte Corvo described as a filmmaker, as his uh, belief in the dictatorship of truth. And yet at the same time, since it is a film, it is not exactly reality, and that right. I mean, it's it's in this Italian neo-realist tradition, so that that gives it, I think, another element of its of its power. Absolutely, and we're going to get into all of this. I I didn't mean to to like get us started too quickly up top, but like, but I this this movie like if you haven't seen this movie, go watch it. Like, it is it's phenomenal. Uh, Barrett, what is your history with this movie? Had you seen this before? Is this something uh, something newer to you? No, I've uh, I've actually um, I'm pretty familiar with it. I I first watched it um, the first time I taught my film history course in uh, in 2007, uh, and one of my goals in that course was to give students uh, a range of different types of film as well as different nationalities. Uh, and at that time, I knew nothing about Battle of Algiers. I just read about it, I guess, and I, I was interested in the idea that it was directed by an Italian but it was set in Africa and it was in that neo-realist uh, tradition. So I used it a couple times in the class and uh, that's, that's how I've, I've known about it. What were students' responses to this? That's a good question. Um, I think they liked it. I don't, I don't remember any responses quite as intense as yours, um, but it was successful enough that I used it 
I used it several times. So uh, the students responded pretty well to it. It just it just teaches so darn well. I mean, there's so many great things you can talk about about filmmaking, not only the history of film, but the technique of filmmaking. It's really a, it really is a great film. So from so many angles, it's funny that you say that it teaches. Well, I actually wrote that exact sentence in my notes. I was like this, it's, it's um, as if, as if that's part of the point of it. And what's interesting is it teaches well, cinematically and visually, like if you're a filmmaker wanting to learn about how to create tension and ideas without words, this movie does it. At the same time, this movie is a how to describe it's a philosophical movie. I mean, there there are philosophical conversations about uh, political revolutions and counterinsurgencies in here. So it's not just about the action. It is about the ideas of it. Uh, and he manages to package that in also a movie that is really watchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to watch at times. There are moments that um, that are really difficult to watch, but it's it doesn't feel like uh, for me, it doesn't feel like homework. And I will say, especially the second time I watched it, because I knew the shape of the movie, I was able to see things a little bit differently because I wasn't trying to make sense out of what what this thing is that I was watching. Um, so th- this one uh, on second viewing got even better. Um, I was not, uh, I guess I just didn't know this story that well. I mean, I knew that Algeria had been a French colony and I knew about post-colonialism, but I didn't know the specifics of this. And I was kind of blown away by, um, kind of what the specifics of this movie were about. For example, I mean, this is a movie that is really interested in the questions of terrorism and anti-terrorism and torture, Mm -hmm. you know, and in that ways, it's like. I think about those things that are products of the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands. So it was interesting to watch a movie from the mid sixties set in the fifties that um, just views those things as, I mean, at least for, for the FLN, like these are, these are just the realities of what we're, of what we need to do to, uh, to, to get this movement started. Um, so the, the, Obviously, the first thing I did then was I I, I sought out uh, Chris Moore, who's a political scientist here who teaches on terrorism. And I said, I, I said, I assume you've seen this, but have you seen the Battle of Algiers? And he says, oh, I teach it every every time I teach terrorism. He says, I always wonder, is it worth taking three days of class to watch this? And he says, once we get it started, I realize, yes, it's worth it. Like this is uh, this feels kind of like talking to Chris Moore about terrorism, where I remember in the the early kind of kind of mid mid late uh, 2000s talking to Chris because I was confused about sort of the objects of uh, the objectives of terrorism. And he's really able to explain it well. And I watch this movie and it's like, oh, it, this movie actually explains some of the ideas behind it really well. So so to that degree, I, you know. It teaches well because it raises questions um, both in indirect ways and then in very direct ways. It basically asks you, and and coming from both the French and the Algerian side, it asks you to wrestle with um, the questions that it raises. Well, that's a really good point about coming from both the French and the Algerian side. And obviously we'll talk a little bit later about um, the film's point of view but, you know, it began as a very Western project. Um, Pentacorvo and his uh, screenwriting partner, uh, Salinas, they had written um, their own screenplay. I think it was called Para for Paratrooper. Um, they had written their own screenplay around 1962 or so, uh, and it was very much their perspective. And then they ran across Asadi Yasef, 
who is who's plays Jafar in the film, uh, who had um, written a memoir about his experience of being a leader of, of the FLN. Um, and so then they completely kind of threw out their script and then worked with him to develop a script based on his own, own memoir. So there's a sense in which the film all along had this interesting balance of the Algerian and the Western uh, point of view, even though you can tell where the sympathies lie, it's not, it's not one-sided in the way it, it treats the, the, the conflict. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, and, and you pointed this out, like, I think it's really important that this is a film that is mostly in French and Arabic. And I was listening to something, um, and th- this, this made me pay more attention to it the second time. I wish I knew, I wish I could tell because I don't speak either French or Arabic. Um, and I don't have an ear for it. Like when the characters move from one language to the other, mm-hmm. um, because, uh, there, it is interesting. I can pick up when, some of the Algerian people start speaking French in certain moments. And I thought, I bet there's a whole other layer to this movie. Mm-hmm. If you can tell how they, they, they pass between those languages. So it's, it's, it's in French and Arabic, but it's made by an, an Italian filmmaker, which gives him a little bit of um, gives Ponte Corvo a little bit of distance because he is neither French nor Algerian, mm-hmm. you know? So, so he can, um, he can make this movie and be highly critical of some French things, but at the same time, he's not making it from a strictly Algerian perspective either. Cause, cause I, I, I tried to find a copy of the, um, the memories of the battle of Algier, the, uh, oh. the Saudi, Saudi Yassif book, but I can only find it in French, which I just said, I don't read. So <laughs> I, uh, I was like, so, cause I was really curious, like how differently does that book read compared to this film like my senses from what i've what i've read about it and about um about yasef's account is that uh, obviously that's going to be more from the algerian point of view and ponte corvo really created that balance of like let's let's sort of try to do both even though this is ultimately i mean history kind of gives us the point of view in terms of like who wins out in this battle Mm -hmm. you know but you know uh and especially not just the battle but as the film shows us the battle is one thing but the war is another thing the war of ideas Mm -hmm. is another thing um and then i think the idea that that ponte corvo is coming out of this italian neorealist uh point of view is important as well as you've already talked about like um he uses non-professional actors. So other than um, uh, the actor, uh, Mart- Martin, who's playing um, uh, Matthew, everybody else is non are non-professional actors. Uh, Cause I-, I think originally a version of this project was a, was a Paul Newman vehicle. Is that, did I read that correctly? Mm-hmm. That he was like, he was supposed to play a, a Western journalist. Mm-hmm. And um, what I love about this movie is nobody, no, there, there are no faces that stand out. Um, and and that I think speaks a little bit to even how the the mo- the the brilliance of how this movie is constructed, which is uh, there are lots of characters in this movie, lots of there are lots of people in this movie, um, but you never it's hard to tell who the central characters are because they kind of come and go. Like mm-hmm. you start with Ali Lapont in the you know it it starts towards the end of the story. And then we get this flashback. So at first it feels like, oh, clearly this is the Ali Lapont story. But then he also disappears from big chunks of the movie. And you realize, well, that's not, I mean, in some ways he his story is there to give shape and, and kind of an arc to this. But at the same time, 
this is they're not interested in the Ali Lapont story. They're interested in a larger story. I mean, the 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 central character of this movie is the Algerian Revolution, um, and it takes a while for you to realize that, which I think is a pretty powerful thing. Yeah, and that and, that, and that's very that's very hard to pull off because you could argue that I mean you could argue that obviously at a historical level the protagonists are the Algerians and the antagonists are the French. In terms of how the movie is structured, Nato is maybe the closest thing to a single character that you follow throughout the film. But but he shows up halfway through the movie. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and 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 he's actually an interesting character. I mean, he doesn't show up as a villain. He actually shows up as real, even though he ends up doing things. It's like, okay, now I'm going to blow you up. And it's like, okay, he's going to blow him up. But then he has these interesting conversations. But what I wanted to get back to was. Um, one of the things that is really interesting about, about the film and is interesting about Ponte Corvo as a filmmaker is he can take months to cast people because when he, when he writes a script and thinks about a film, he has very specific faces in mind. And that's one of the reasons why he uses non-professional actors, because he doesn't care about somebody's history as an actor. In fact, when he when he found the uh, the, uh, the 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 guy that plays Ali Lapont, um, that character that fellow in real life had never even never even seen a film, hmm. um, and he truly was illiterate uh, a, 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 as well. So he's really so he has in mind he has very specific um, characteristics for his characters, and he just he will walk around the city for weeks just looking at faces trying to find. The right people and so i think that's one of the reasons why um to talk a little bit about film technique that's one of the reasons why the film has so many close-ups mm-hmm. why the film has so many zoom shots uh into characters because he's really interested there, there's a paradox here sam in a way right because you're right it's about the algerian people and there is no single protagonist and yet he gives you when i think about this film i think about so many memorable faces mm-hmm. like you know the woman the the woman that goes in to, to plant the bomb in in the bar and you know the close-up on her face as she looks at the various people that she knows will be dead in five minutes i mean though the, that's extraordinarily powerful and he wants that specific face to be to be the one that we're focusing on absolutely no yeah i think i think that that's right but but the 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 other powerful part about not framing this as any particular character story, because that would be the natural way to do this. I'm going to tell the story of the Algerian revolution through this person. And Ali Lapont feels like actually for a lot of this, like, well, that feels like the natural character, but because he doesn't do that, it also means that nobody really has much in the way of plot armor (laughs) that at any moment, any of these characters could die, could go away, could be, you know, so, so like when we're introduced to, uh, one of my favorite characters is uh, uh, Ben Mahibi. And I'm like, oh, this guy's fascinating because he's like the he's the intellectual force of this. And I'm just thinking like, OK, well, we're going to be with this guy for a while. And he's in a couple scenes and then he's gone. And I just realized like 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 he, he sort of pulled away from us. And this mm-hmm. made me think about um, one of the brilliant things that 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 Ponte Corvo does and the, the screenwriters do is when when uh, Matthew is is first introduced into the film he gives us this kind of briefing to his men about how we're going to do things differently and one of the things that he does is he lays out the structure of the fln the pyramid structure and he's like 
you know, we we don't know who they are because in point of fact, they don't know who each other is, mm-hmm. right? Because it's built in this way. And and that's actually what watching this movie feels like is like you realize this isn't this, you're not looking at an army with a structure, you're looking at this intentionally diffuse thing. So you can't hold on to anything too tightly because it's built for people to to not make it, but to keep the movement going. And and I feel like that is built into the movie. So we're going to go back to our a trope here of a movie teaching us how to watch it, right? Mm-hmm. That scene, he is telling us something about, here's how to look at the FLN. Like, this isn't about a person. This isn't about a one leader. You you know, and 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 Matthew then has this sort of idea of like the 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 thing that matters is that we get to the executive bureau of the FLN because that's the the head of the tapeworm, um, and it creates the shape of this movie in such an interesting way um, that that I, I just thought that's a, another kind of brilliant piece of storytelling is is building the shape of the FLN into how the the Algerian side of the movie is told. And I think, I think, I think to continue the theme of how to watch the movie, I think it enables you to relax when you say to yourself, Oh, so who exactly is this guy and how does he relate to that guy? You can mm-hmm. say to yourself, well, don't worry about it because they don't know how they relate to each other. So, so just, so, so what it enables you to do is kind of to, to be able to focus on each individual episode without necessarily knowing what the bigger scheme is because they don't know the bigger scheme. They're, they're, they're getting messages saying, now you do this, now you do that. And so I think it helps us kind of stay with that flow and not feel like we're in a mystery where we don't know how the pieces fit together. It's a, you're exa- it's a hundred percent right. And at the same time, if you rewatch this movie and pay attention, there are people who circle cycle back in like the woman who uh, the one bomber who dyes her hair, like mm-hmm. you'll see her throughout the movie yep. or the, the couple who gets married yes. towards the beginning. That's whose house they're in at the end. And it's like, you don't, that's not needed. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have that, but it also in, in makes this sort of this richer experience too, to realize this, uh, this community is intertwined. This story is intertwined in ways. And there are things passing that you didn't realize, um, uh, which I, I think just adds adds this sort of whole other uh, layer to this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the, 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 the story arc, in part because it allows us to talk about certain episodes in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it, so the story starts with, uh, this raid on on the Casbah late in the story in, in uh, uh, 1957, and this is where we find Lapont hold up. We get the uh, the Morricone music that then um, Tarantino. I heard that and I'm like, man, I have heard this before. And I realized Tar- Tarantino uses it in Glorious Bastards, and I'm like that's that's where I've heard that. So you you get that, but then you flash back to of to to uh, a younger. Um, Ali Lapont, and really not that much younger, with you know mm-hmm. six years younger, or whatever. Um, and you see that he's just kind of a uh, he's just a guy living in Algeria, maybe a low level, like eh, just kind of street hustler a little bit, like he's running a three card Monty game. And we see him arrested, um, and we get his rap sheet. And I think this is really important that this kind of happens in voiceover. And if you pay attention to all of the things, you know, the kind of juvenile crimes and stuff like this, none of them are tied to any kind of political awakening. Mm-hmm. It's just like he, he did this, he did, you know, but, but it's just, it's like any other, you know, it might as well be like, like young, um, uh, uh, 
uh, blanking on the guy's name from Hill from from Goodfellas or something. It's like just like <laughs> yeah, just you know, low level crime. But then we get to the prison and we and we start to see his political awakening or his mm-hmm. radicalization right and it comes into watching uh watching another uh, watching an fln leader get guillotined yeah, yeah. which is a powerful moment mm-hmm. and uh thank god he cuts away from that because i had this fear of like well how far are you gonna go in this um but that that then becomes this early incident in Laponte's life that draws him slowly into the fln mm-hmm. And, you know, and then we get sort of the FLN test where, you know, he's supposed to shoot the cop and they give yeah. him an unloaded gun. And but but in, that almost feels like a like a mob movie or something like, OK, how are we going to how are we going to um, how are we going to going to test you to see if you can be part of this part of this group? Um, and, you know, and then that that quickly leads him into contact with um, with Jafar. Uh, but that's where we get the first sort of picture of like, OK, this this revolution we're going to see here is not uh, that there, that there is a, a, a intellectual structure to it. Cause Jafar explains to him before we can do anything else, we have to clean up our, we have to clean up the Casbah. We have to clean up ourselves. You know, he says, uh, first we must get organized before we can take action. We need to clean house first, organize the country. Only then can we take on our real enemy. Right. And this is where we get the, you know, the, the FLN communique about banning alcohol and drugs and prostitution. Right. So we get another, another character in this movie is the war of the propaganda war, right? So you get the world war of terrorism. You also get FLN communiques and you get news reports from the French and eventually just the French piping in messages into the Casbah. Right. So that's like another, another aspect of the revolution is, and if you pay attention to those messages, they're so contradictory to each other. You know, the French are saying from almost the beginning, the FLN has been defeated. <laughs> France is your homeland, you know, and you get the FLN being like, no, we have them on the run. Like, it's kind of, I, I thought that's such an interesting, almost background noise to this movie. Well, you know, that the whole FLN um, uh, conversation and the, the part of the movie that focuses on, you know, the FLN, as you're saying, we need, we need to clean, clean things up. I mean, for me, that's another way in which the film, one of the many ways in which the film resonates today, right? Because you start thinking about, well, here's another snapshot of what a government under Islam might look like. Um, and so you have the mob, you know, the, it, it's kind of a terrifying scene. To, to me, children behaving in a mob is one of the more terrifying things in, in, in a film. There's a, there's a film from the mid-70s with Chris Christopherson, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, uh, and it features a gang of about five or six boys doing away with the Christofferson character. And so there's something about those kids ganging up on the drunkard. Um, I, I think there's a real um, ambiguity about that scene, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, okay, so the FLN has these this motive that they want uh, they want to clean up the populace. They want to kind of uh, introduce a kind of ethical rigor to to life, which is not a bad goal. But then you see a helpless guy being beaten up by a bunch of kids. And you think, well, that's how is that maybe another version of colonialism? Is it like um, is it like the Who song? Meet the old meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. I mean, that I mean, that's not Ponte Corvo's central concern, but you see it there. And I can't help but think about things like the Iranian Revolution, you know, 13 years later and, and, and things like that. So that's one more way in which the film to me has this incredible 
complexity in the way it reflects the complexity of life itself. Well, I mean, and it speaks to um, one of the questions on both sides of this movie, whether you're looking at the Algerian or the French, is you're seeing people make arguments which are functionally arguments that along the lines of the end justifies the means. Like mm-hmm. if we get where we want to get ultimately, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to to break a few eggs to get there. Mm-hmm. And and that's another scene of like, well, ultimately we would love this world where this guy wasn't drunk and, you know, walking in the streets. Uh, but how do we get there? And it's like, well, that's one approach to, <laughs> to do it. Right. But it's like, 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 are you, are you going about this in, in the most effective way? Um, mm-hmm. or, or I, not, not the most effective way, the most caring, humane way. And we're going to see that this movie is showing on both sides that there are compromises for for sort of how we get there. So from here, we get to uh, a sort of a series of, ex- of uh, escalations. You get kind of open warfare on the French police. Then you get the French putting in the barricades on the Casbah. Then we have that really important scene where the the, the woman... Uh, sort of all covered up in veils, like goes through and the, the one officer like stops her and the other guys like never touch their women. And then that opens the door up to, well, the women start smuggling guns mm-hmm. through, which leads to the, 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 the police commissioner. And I, it, I took me a while. It took me a second viewing to understand who these people were when the, the French police commissioner brings the people into the Casbah to bomb it at night. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is which is the, the that's the big French escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this leads to one of the most important scenes in the movie, because from that bombing, you get the next morning and you see people starting protesters starting to march through the Casbah led by Ali Lapont. And the message comes to him from Jafar saying, like, you need to stop them instead of you need to lead them because mm-hmm. um, and the message that in Jafar comes and the message that Jafar sends is the FLN will avenge you. So mm-hmm. it's like, we're not ready for this yet. Mm-hmm. If, if, if we march on them now, we'll be destroyed. Instead, let the FLN be your avenging force. And that also gives the FLN authority and responsibility, or they take authority and responsibility. And this leads to the, best most horrifying scenes in this movie which is the three the women the the three women who who bring bombs into the city which uh is such a complex thing to it's it's some of the best filmmaking in the movie in terms of like um the like it's the heist movie tension of it as they're going through the checkpoints and uh and then when they get to their locations and and these women you 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 watch them look around and look at their targets because now the targets aren't police officers they are uh, you know, a kind of an upscale cafe, uh, I, the milk bar, which is like the the youth, and then the Air France, um, yeah. the Air France location, and um, the whole time I'm watching that, like, because I've been taught to watch movies in a way, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I hope they don't get caught, and then I'm thinking about what they're doing and think, wait mm-hmm. a minute, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I also don't want them to blow these places up, but I also, I think I'm on their side. I think I'm on, not on the side of the 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 colonial like it, it it's 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 that is such a great moment in terms of teachable moments like there's probably a solid class discussion or two you can get out of what emotions do you go through watching a scene like that and intellectually how do you watch a scene like that and how do you square those two yeah and and that and that's why to get back to this theme of, of balance that's why I mean on the one hand. You can't possibly say the film is balanced. I mean, obviously, this is a film that wants the Algerians to win because, as you said at the beginning, Sam, the Algerians do win. 
but but to go back to the to go back to the the the, the, um, the scene in the milk bar and I mean so yes you're we we are in a sense rooting for, for the woman uh, who's got the bomb and we're like okay so we're actually kind of on the side of of a terrorist. Um, but then Pantacoyo does a couple different things. One I've already mentioned, we get the close-up of her looking at the various people. And then we see the people, especially the kid eating the ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. And right, and, and you realize, that, okay, that kid is going to be dead in, in just a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though you're being told, you get back to what you said about the ends justify the means. It's not as it's though you're being told, it's okay that the kid's dead because we're going to achieve our goal. No, you don't feel that way. What I think you end up feeling is it is... It is really tragic that history, the history of colonialism, the history of West, the West in Africa, that those forces have brought these people to this position where the Algerians feel as though they have no choice to, to behave in ways that if, if they could do what they prefer, they would probably prefer not to blow people up. I honestly believe that. And I do not. And I think the French would probably prefer not to go around blowing up the Casbah. But they have been put in a position where, because historically and politically, how they've been situated, they are, I, I won't say they're puppets of history, but they have, they, they are compelled by certain historical forces and certain political desires to behave in a certain way. So I'm not saying we exactly see them as kind of victims or puppets, but we see them as people in a complex situation so we can end up both approving and disapproving, accepting and rejecting kind of at, at, the, at the same time. Right. Um, and, that, and, and it's part of what makes this movie so powerful is it forces you to not only think about that moment, but to your point, it forces you to think about what is the situation that led to like the much broader 200 year situation that led to this moment being logical right like there is a kind of logic to what they're doing even though it is horrific and illogical like like and so it makes you have to pull back and the movie isn't going to totally do this for you but it makes you have to pull back and say okay how did we get here and how do we stop as a as a as as humanity how do we stop getting to this place you know and 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 i think that the movie makes you think about that and that is that is such a such an important thing um so on the heels of of these three bombings, finally we get the the introduction of the paratroopers and Matthew. So, like, really, the central French character shows up at this point, and it's such a filmmaking wise, it is such a great character introduction. Um, you know, and it's hard to talk about these things because, like, like it's it is both history, but it also is a character induction. So you watch the paratroopers march in, you watch Matthew at the at the lead. Uh, we get a little break, a little bit of breakdown of like who he is. So he is this, you know, former French resistance fighter. He's, you know, he fought in uh, in in Indochina and Vietnam, um, mm-hmm. uh, which the French have have previously lost, right? So so um, so we we see him, and then we we go from there to the uh, to to his briefing with his troops, and he's sort of like, this is now the person who's been. Now we've called in the experts to like to end this. Uh, in you know to the French mind um, and he shows the checkpoint footage and, and he says I'm showing you this to show you the futility of certain methods to say okay like basically he's saying like half measures aren't going to work mm-hmm. you know like like the the things that um that uh the, the sort of traditional methods don't work in the face of people who are willing to do what the what the FLN is willing to do 
Uh, and, it, and one of the great moments in there is as we're looking at the footage, we see the one woman who goes to the milk bar. We see her go through the checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And like, they don't know that that's her, but we know it's like, that's her. That's one of the bombers. But to them, it's just like, it's how do you possibly, how can you possibly tell? Right. And he says there are, there are 400,000 uh, uh algerians in algiers and he says they're not all our enemies but we can't tell who who is and who isn't yeah it's 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 also part of um in a sense not learning from history right i mean the very fact that mato has been in vietnam and the french lost vietnam is like you know don't 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 the colonizers learn that uh this is not a battle you're you're going you're going to win so part of it is I, is almost kind of re- resisting the tide of history and not understanding that you are part of, you know, this is the great, the 60s, or the late 50s, early 60s of the great period of, of decolonization and not realizing that that is actually what they are, they are, they are part of as well. well and I think, I think Matteo in some ways maybe represents, um, uh lessons learned from vietnam where he's like this is why we're not going to do these things this is why Mm. we're because he goes on to say here's what we're going to do and we end up seeing he's going to embrace some techniques like torture and some of these other things to be like like if, if if we bind ourselves by certain laws and certain conventions this isn't going to work i thought of this is a maybe a weird connection but i thought of uh matthew as somebody who it's like oh this what we're watching is a stage in the life of colonel kurtz (laughs) it's like there was a moment where kurtz was like this and he was he kept pushing but then kurtz pushed past a line that was acceptable right because if you pay attention in apocalypse now to the story you get of kurtz like Kurtz is unbelievably effective. It's just his methods are unsound. And it's like we're watching Matthew push up against, are your methods unsound? Like, like they may be effective, but are they unsound? Um, so so in some ways, like that's that's who I thought of when I saw Matthew, which also made him a more interesting character uh, to think about as well. And that's a date, you know, that's a debate we continue to have in the in the war on terrorism. Look at Guantanamo Bay and the whole. I mean, that question of, of torture and, you know, in the news conference, he gets asked that very pointed question about, about torture um, and the, the problem of do you, we talked about this last time as well, if when you're trying to defeat a monster, how do you avoid becoming monstrous yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a real struggle. So right after Matthew is is introduced, we then get uh, Ben, uh, ben uh, M. Uh, Mhidi, sorry, I'm trying to get, say his name right. Ben Mhidi, who is the, like I said, is kind of the intellectual on the other side, and he has this great conversation he has with uh, with uh, Ali Lapont. Um, and what's great is we realize like Lapont is not there as somebody who is he is not an intellectual. I mean, we know that he can't read; he's not an intellectual, but he's somebody who the intellectuals are using as a sounding board, and they're trying to explain whether it's Jafar Mhidi are trying to explain like what are we really doing here? So this is as they're, the strike is about to happen and Mpiti explains the strike, right? And, and um, I imagine this is the kind of thing where someone like Chris Moore gets really excited because he's talking about terrorism, but terrorism is not an end. Terrorism is a means. Um, you know, he says uh, with the strike, he says the French will no longer be groping in the dark. Every striker will be a recognizable enemy, a certified criminal. The French will take the offensive. Um, but then he says like, but the point of the strike is that uh, terrorism is helpful to like get the re- to, to to start the revolution. Uh, but the people uh, the people must act. 
that's the rationale for the strike to mobilize the Algerians and to assess our strength. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that's where you realize there's a weight to this more than just blowing a bunch of stuff up, but there's like, we are, tr- what we're trying to do is activate more of the Algerian people, because if this is just going to be a, uh, an FLN act of terror, like this is not going to lead to revolution. What we need to do is to um, basically Ali, what, what happened to you, we need to have happen to everybody else where you came to this, this, uh, this realization or this, you know, politicization or radicalization or whatever. And it's like, we need to do that to, to the rest of Algeria. And then he ends with that great thing about like, where he says, uh, it's hard to start a revolution. It's even harder to sustain it, sustain it and hardest of all to win it. But it's only afterwards, once we've won, that the real difficulties begin. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of like, in essence, we're doing the easiest part now, which is it's easy. It's easy to blow something up and get attention and get things started. But then how do you actually run a revolution? And that's where the strike, because Ali is is asking, like, the thing I don't like about the strike is we we're told to, like, put our weapons away. And he's like, yeah, because we can't we, we can't win this war if it's only if this is only about conventional warfare or terrorism, what we need is to mobilize masses of people. And uh, so this is where I think this becomes like, like a, a, a textbook on revolution, right? Like, like that's a pretty good lecture on thinking about, okay, what are the, what are the steps of revolution in some interesting ways? Well, and, 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 and the strike certainly plays into kind of a Marxist um, uh, perspective on, on political change because Ultimately, the Algerians represent a very uh, a, a very important base of production, right? I mean, they they provide goods and they provide food. I mean, they they literally support the country. And the French, you know, so it's that classic paradox, right? That the that the the master is reliant on the servant, mm-hmm. and so they the the Algerians have this enormous economic power that the strike really kind of gets at, and. And you know, forcing forcing the French into into forcing them, you know, you got to go back to work again. Um, so I, I think that it, it really does show you the power that that uh, that the economic element of the revolution has. Absolutely. Um, and then we get these. The one of my favorite things is the the dual press conferences where you have Mhidi sure. is is captured, and actually, it's sort of weird that he gets to give a press conference. Yes. But apparently, this actually happened. That the 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 uh, Matteo character is a composite of of a few different people, but. Uh, at least one of them really did have kind of admiration for for uh, Mhidi or who I don't know if Mhidi is a real person or as a, a you know a version of a person. So he actually he actually and he even says in there like after after Mhidi dies in his own press conference, Matthew says like there's a there's a degree to which I honor his memory, right? Like like he's um, so so there is this this sense and and that's where we get the great line about like they're asking like isn't it cowardly to send women with bombs and baskets you know into marketplaces and he says isn't it cowardly to napalm villages with planes give us bombers and we'll give you our baskets um which is a great a great piece of revolutionary rhetoric to be like like how you know in essence how can you call us monsters you're the monsters you know to 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 use your uh your terminology there right 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 yeah and then we have uh, matthew's press conference where he talks about torture and we, we've talked a little bit about this but this is where we also I think another powerful line to me is the when, when Matthew is talking about, you know, those who call us fascists forget the, the role we played in the resistance. Those who call us Nazis don't know that some of us survived Dachau and Buchenwald. So there is this also this other piece of this history where it's like the French were also occupied 
15 years, not even 10 years before, uh, you know, 10, 12 years before, um, they were the people who were pushing out the oppressor who was occupying them. And now they're the people who are who are needing to deal with occupation. And that's, I think is such an interesting, an interesting piece to think about this. Well, it, it is. And, and, and it's, and there's a, I don't know if you want to call it a paradox or a contradiction that, that somehow by invoking his own uh, history in the resistance is so he's almost giving, trying to give a kind of a moral justification or a moral authority for what he's doing is as if he's saying, well, I, I know what it's like to really be an oppressor. I have, I have worked, I have fought against oppressors, therefore I cannot possibly be an oppressor right now. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a strange self-justification or it's, it's almost as though he's looking in the mirror and being deliberately blind to what's being reflected back to him. It also uh, enables me to kind of bring in an element of Ponte Corvo's own life. And that is, um, in, in, in what Matteo said, there's there's two connections to Ponte Corvo. One is he himself was a leader of uh, in northern Italy in the, in, the, in Milan. Uh, uh, he was a leader against Mussolini's fascism during mm. World War II. So he actually has the kind of equivalent experience that Matteo was a leader of the French resistance. So Ponte Corvo, as an individual, was himself very politically engaged. And then, of course, his first or his second feature film and the first one to make his kind of international reputation was called Capo, which is about um, a young Jewish woman trying to escape from a concentration camp uh, uh, during World War II. So he was actually one of the first filmmakers to deal with that particular theme uh, as well. So there's, there's elements, I'm not saying that Metau is an autobiographical figure for Ponte Corvo, but there are elements of his own experience going into that character. Certainly. And then, and then Pont, uh, um, uh, Matteo ends that press conference, you know, when they're asking him about torture. And I love the one the one reporter who's like, OK, we've been skirting around this. Can we just can somebody just say the word torture and let's talk about it? Yeah. And it's almost like Matthew wants to talk about it. But he's like, if you're not going to ask me, I'm not going to I'm not going to offer this up. But sure, let's talk about it. And um, and he ends by saying, should France stay in Algeria? If your answer is still yes, you must accept the consequences. So he is he is. I mean, that that's probably an overstatement, but at the same time, he is saying like, if you're going to take the stance that we need to stay in Algeria and the Algerians don't want us here just by having that point of view and especially expressing that point of view in the press, you're complicit. Like, like you're part of this, you are colonialists too. I'm just the one tasked with fighting the colonial war, Mm. you know? So, 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 so I, I find that, I mean, that that's again, where he starts to sound curtsy into me. Where it's like, yeah, are, do you want to? Do you really want this? Because I can do this, but um, so we we move from there to uh, what I think are actually the hardest scenes in this movie to watch, which are the actual depictions of torture. Yeah, um, and what we see is that it works, right? Yeah. The, the the torture leads them to the capture of Jafar, and we yeah. see Jafar. You know, he gives himself up to be arrested rather than blown up, but that leads us then to. Um, to where the movie starts, right? We're in the Casbah. Lapont is uh, is holed up in the wall. They 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 put the explosives there. They give him a chance to surrender, and and uh, Lapont doesn't. Um, but then we get what I think is such an important scene, which is this because because this happens in daylight in front of everyone, and as we're waiting for the bomb to go off, the explosives to go off, where Lapont is, Ponte Corvo takes a moment to pan the Casbah. And we mm-hmm. see all of these people watching. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. We see we see buildings with windows and people watching, people standing on buildings. And there is this sense of like this is an echo of Lapont in prison, right? Lapont was activated by watching this guy get guillotined, and now we're watching all of these other people watching mm-hmm. Lapont get executed, essentially be executed. And there is this sense of like uh it's this it's this 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 great sort of moment in the movie where after that explosion you see uh Matthew talking to the general. And it's sort of like, I've achieved what you wanted me to do. I I rooted out the executive bureau. The FLN is no more. And there, so there is this sense of like, he has done everything he's been asked to do. But you can tell like, well, there's even if you don't know the story, what's going to happen next, you can tell like, yeah, you maybe wiped out all of those people, you know, the, the FLN executive bureau, but you've also just activated all of these other people who watched it. Um, and then we get to the forward cuts from there. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. You're kind of you're 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 seeing the actual seeds of the revolution being sown at the, at that point. Um, I, I do I do want to say just something quickly about the the torture and the 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 the, the guy that's being tortured and, and gives up Ali Lapont. Um, another example of of Pontecorvo's casting. Um, he was a the guy who plays that character was a was a petty thief who was in in jail. And somehow Pontecorvo found him there. Uh, and, and his tears at the end are because he's being sent back to finish his 15-day mm. sentence. So it's like, and, and, and that's another thing I want to say is these people may be non-professional actors, but he gets, he gets great performances out of them. Um, and, and in part because they're essentially, they're essentially playing themselves. Uh, and, and so it's, it's got that kind of naturalism that, that, that he's going for. Uh, and then, and then to your point, it is, it is unbelievable that the, that the rest of the footage in this movie is staged just as like, 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 how do you shoot this on? I mean, these are, cause you, there's, there's elements of Italian neorealism. You watch bicycle thieves and you're like, oh, you can steal some of these shots, you know? Cause like, you don't have to, if you're in the big marketplace, like you can just take some cameras in there and you know, film your actors and you don't have to worry about everything. Everything else is just happening, but they have to stage citywide riots yes. <laughs> and, and like the number of people that need to be part of that. Like I, I it, this is, it's interesting. This is a movie that there are, uh, I'm curious on the, on the sight and sound list if this is higher on the filmmakers list. I know it's on both lists, mm-hmm. but it's like, like there are a lot of filmmakers. I love Kubrick, um, uh, Nolan, who love this movie and are just sort of amazed by this movie. And it, like, I get it. I get, you get to this point and you're just like, how do you, how do you manage to make something that looks like that? It, you know, like it, and, 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 and there must be archival footage one could use. Mm-hmm. So, so the thought of like, well, we're actually going to, going to recreate this. Um, it is, it is pretty amazing. So, so we get this sort of acceleration, this fast forward to 1960 and then, you know, all, up through 62 with the, um, the uh independence of algeria on july 2nd uh 1962 um which is you know 60 years ago so um the other thing that that this movie makes me want to do uh it makes me want to study the stuff that led to this as we were talking about before it also makes me want to know i don't really know the history of algeria from 1962 to 2022 very well it's like well i kind of want to know the rest of the story like okay well what, what happens next um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Sadi Yasef not only wrote the book for this, he also ends up serving in the uh, the Algerian Senate. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a politician in Algeria 
Um, you know, and this movie's made only four years after Algerian independence. So this is a, a ripped from the headlines kind of movie. Well, you know, they really did blow up the place in the Cosmos and then they rebuilt it. So again, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's a wonderful extra though. There's several amazing extras about this film on the Criterion channel. And one of the ones I enjoy is they talk to the five filmmakers, uh, Mira Nair, Steven Soderbergh, Julian Schnabel, Oliver Stone, and Spike Lee. And Mira, Mira Nair says, this is, uh, Mira Nair says, this is the only film she wishes that she had directed. And Soderbergh talks about how he stole from it for traffic. Mm-hmm. Julian Schnabel says something you and I were saying earlier, which is, this is a film that if you want to know how to make movies, you should watch this film. Uh, and there's one other thing he says I'll come back to in a minute. Oliver Stone says, this was a this is a time when Hollywood was trying to do kind of its version of neorealism, like the films of John Cassavetes. And this is a film that showed you how you could kind of make a documentary style film that's also, you know, an entertaining film. And then the one I really love, which resonates with what you were just saying a few minutes ago, Sam, is Spike Lee says, I don't know how I did it. He says all that, that stuff at the end, it's staged. It's it's not a real doc. I don't know. He says, I just don't know how, how they did it. So, But the thing that Schnabel says that we haven't talked uh, much about is he says, if you want to see how to um, put music to moving images, mm. this is the film. Pontecorvo said the only regret he had in his life was that he didn't become a composer. Uh, he actually did compose a lot of the music for his films or co-composed it. Now, this film, he went to Ennio Morricone, because he loved Morricone's scores for Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns. And so Morricone, um, he built on that, that, that drumbeat theme. That was one of the, the, the fundamental themes of the film. But the other really important thing we haven't talked about, and I've alluded to this several times in terms of how the film tries to be even-handed, is the same music plays after each of the bombings whether it's the Algerians having bombed the French or the French having bombed the Algerians, you get the same kind. I don't know how to describe it. It's an elegiac, mass-like music that brings a deep sense of pathos to both of those scenes. And I think that's one of the ways in which uh, Pantacorvio is being even-handed. This is a tragedy for both sides, and we mourn the loss of life on both sides. Yeah, yeah. I, I... It's interesting, you know, you you had mentioned it's like, you know, how did the French not learn from Vietnam when they go into this? I also think about this movie was made in 1966. That's two years before the Tet Offensive. It's mm-hmm. like, how does everybody not learn from something yes. like this? You know, I, in, in some ways, I... As I said last week, my daughter and I watched a lot of Vietnam War movies, and this is a ridiculous statement I'm going to make, but like this might be the best Vietnam War movie I've ever seen, which has nothing to do with. But it's like, like this is this. I was thinking about movie pairings like this pairs well with any Vietnam movie you could watch. I think it's interesting to watch this because you're both getting a like an attempt to sort of depict history in a documentary style, even though it's it's not a docu a documentary film compared to, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, whether it's Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now or Good Morning Vietnam, whatever Vietnam War movie you want to put up there, like they, there is a kind of contrast between them in filmmaking, but there is also this, I feel like informs a lot of American films about the Vietnam war. It, 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 it rounds out some of the characters that uh, on the, uh, the side of the Viet Cong where you don't always get to see, you see them as, you know, civilians running in and bombing things and stuff like this, but like this, and, and even the, even when those films try to be 
sympathetic or complex about it. I feel like this sheds light on them. So I think this would pair nicely with any of those. The other movie I thought about, and it's a movie I've only seen once and really loved, um, but it's a movie that I think is definitely tied to the war on the war on terror is uh, Spielberg's 2005 movie Munich. I really wanted to watch Munich mm-hmm. after this mm-hmm. um, because again, that is about thinking about the, you know, how do you respond to acts of terror and what does that do to you to, you know, to, go all the way to try to um, fulfill your objectives in that. So um, that's a movie I haven't seen in a while. I'm like, I think I need to watch Munich sometime soon. Cause I, I, I really thought that was a, was a thoughtful movie. This movie also feels like it just could have been made in 2005 and it, sure. and it would have sp- spoken perfectly to kind of where we were at there. Are there other things you want to talk about with this? movie? I just, I, I just only wanted to briefly mention that, um, well, so a couple things about the filmmaking technique that uh, um, it's almost all, it's all handheld. Uh, he used an, an Aeroflex camera, which was one of the early handheld cameras. And uh, when the film uh, was first being edited, I can't remember the name of the, of the original editor, but he was somebody who had a very stellar reputation in Italian cinema. Pontecorvo, you know, he got all the best people, but the, he did an initial cut of the film and Pontecorvo watched it and he said it was beautifully done, but it was Hollywood editing. It wasn't what I wanted at all. And he actually fired this guy hmm. and, got, and got a really young editor who'd never done any significant work before, but whose understanding of what Pontecorvo was going for was uh, consistent with his. So it made me think a, little, think a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot about auteur theory and Pontecorvo is very much an auteur, but you also need the right collaborators in order to kind of fulfill that vision. And so there's lots of ways in which Pontecorvo seemed to find the right people to, to work with, whether it was the screenplay or the music or, or, the, or the editing, or of course, all the particular actors. Uh, one other name I want to throw out there in terms of a filmmaker who 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 loves this movie, uh, it kind of unsurprisingly is a, one of your favorites. Werner Herzog loves <laughs> loves this, and when when he teaches film school stuff, he always makes students watch this. And I wonder if part of it is because the only way, you know, to answer Spike Lee's question, the only way to get that footage is to start a revolution, and that feels like what what uh, Herzog would do is like, well, if I want to make a movie about a revolution, let's actually start a revolution and film it. Um, that's that that sort of seems like like Herzog's like if you want to make the thing let's have the let's do the thing and film it so um yeah I, I like I, I could I could see him being drawn to um uh, again the, the the realism of something like this well yes and of course Herzog has made as many documentaries as he's made feature films and Pompecorvo mm-hmm. made more he Pompecorvo made 11 documentaries as opposed to five feature films so that's another way in which they're similar all right, Barrett, we're getting to the end here. What do you have for us for next week? Okay, well, I'm going to make I'm going to make a really um, far fetched connection and then tell you the next film, and that is that um, Pontecorvo was original fell in love with moving pictures. He originally was interested in photography, and then he loved the fact that pictures move. There's another filmmaker, uh, another of my favorites, who moved from being a still photographer to being a maker of moving images, and that would be, of course, Stanley Kubrick. Um, and so that means that we're going to watch, uh, we're going to watch, um, uh, uh, Paths of Glory, uh, next week from Kubrick's, uh, 1957, uh, film, uh, a very different war story, of course, World War One with Kirk Douglas, very much a Hollywood film, but at the same time, I think it's also a very interesting film about, about war. Wow. It, this is the most serendipitous thing in the world. Uh, my daughter and I, when, when my, my wife is out of town this weekend, and when she's out of town, my daughter and I will do these like big film festivals. And guess what was already on the bill for this weekend? 
paths of glory and we were like we need to find another kubrick movie to watch and there's some that i won't watch with my daughter but paths of glory feels like i could do that one so it's very funny i was already planning on watching that this weekend so that is perfect excellent fantastic well barrett thank you so much for uh for recommending this movie uh and for having this conversation I we're we're getting close to 150 where I'll sit down and make another list of the movies we watched. Um, and the problem is I feel like there's about 25 or 30 movies that need to be in the top 10. And I, you just keep adding ones where I'm like, I don't know, like this, this one's pretty amazing. Uh, and I, I, I didn't expect I was going to feel this way, that way about this movie. And um, I get why filmmakers are drawn to this movie. Why, um, teachers are drawn to this movie. Why critics could be drawn to this movie? Um, I mean, there's a the, the one other thing we didn't mention, which I feel like everything that writes about this mentions, is that this was also filmed or screened in the Pentagon in 2003 mm-hmm. um, with the uh, with with the the notice which said uh, how to win a battle against terrorism and lose the war on ideas. Basically, mm-hmm. it was like you know they they screened this to be like, well, if we're about to fight a war on terror we need to read the textbook on it. And part of that textbook is the battle of Algiers. So, so thank you for, uh, for having this conversation for recommending it. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about paths of glory in the video store. (laughs) 